Bonjour, this is Thomas Chatterton Williams, your host for Americans in Paris, a podcast of the American Scholar. We're coming to you from the American Library in Paris, which, along with the Phi Beta Kappa Society, is sponsoring this episode. Today I'm speaking with Mira Kamdar, a genuine Renaissance woman who is impossible to pigeonhole. Born to a Gujarati father and a Danish-American mother, she was raised on the West Coast and educated at Reed College, the Johns Hopkins University, and the University of California at Berkeley. Mira studied philosophy with Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, and was a member of the editorial board of the New York Times from 2013 to 2017. She is the author of Mutiba's Tattoos, A Granddaughter's Journey from America into Her Indian Family's Past, Planet India, The Turbulent Rise of the World's Largest Democracy and the Future of Our World, and India in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. Mira, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. So tell me, how did you, how did you end up here? Uh, what, what was the route you took uh, from America to a life uh, in Paris? Well, when I went to college, I thought I would work in international relations. And in the 1970s, French was considered the language of diplomacy. And the small college I attended, Reed College, which was a much poorer institution than it is today, didn't have a study abroad program. But my first year French teacher insisted I go to France. So I got myself enrolled in the courses for foreigners at the Sorbonne and, mm-hmm. and came here not knowing a soul, with very little money, and um, that was where it all began in 1977. 1977, that was a different town than it is today, certainly. Paris was different, and I was different, yeah. <laughs> Both changed a lot. Uh-huh. Was it easier to come over uh, and make a life for yourself? I imagine it must have been in some ways, right? But it was more of a definitive move back then. Than well, I mean, I went back and finished mm-hmm. college, and lived in the United States for a long time. My, my children were later born in New York, and, and then I returned here after after many longish return trips because I ended up getting a PhD in French literature, mm-hmm. so I would come and you know take courses like with Jacques Derrida at the uh, École Normale Supérieure or things like that. But, um, but was it easier? I, I don't know. I mean, in a way, I suppose it was easier as uh, something that helped form who I became as an adult because there, were no, there was no social media, there was no internet, there was no email. I wrote letters to my parents who themselves were at that point abroad living in South Korea. Uh, the letters would take weeks, you know, wow, either yeah. way. Uh, I would go, in fact, pick my mail up at the American Express office, which had a post restant. Just like James Baldwin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was still like that when I came here. And so I was really on my own. And, you know, those were, it, was a, it was an intensely formative period. And it cemented, I think, a certain anchoring of myself in Paris and in France because it's, it was a moment when I became the adult that I ended up, you know, being. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, the, that moment was sort of forged during that time I spent here as a very, very young woman. Yeah. And you're, you're really, um, in, 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 in the best and most superlative ways, uh, a, a, a person, a citizen of the world. I mean, your, 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 your parents, your background, your upbringing, and then the choices you've made as an adult. And now... You've been married to a French man for many years. I mean, how do you conceive of yourself uh, 
are you French? Are you American? Are you something else? Are you just a human being? I mean, I'm really intrigued by all the facets of your identity. I think I'm all those things at once. You know, I think it's, it's a, and if anyone really stops to think about it, as you have in, in, in your latest book, um, you know, we are complex. Our identities are complex constructions, and they're also fluid and changing over time. As I said, well, who I was really then, yeah. you know, is not exactly the same person I am now. Um, yet there's something me that's still there. Uh, and I think I'm all those things at once. I, I, I definitely, I, I think I feel most French when I go back to the United States. And there are things that strike me as being, wow, that's so strange. Or wow, it's really like that or something. And, and then, you know, there are moments here, even though I have a very French life, as you said, my husband is French. I've lived here. I'm now a French citizen. But there are moments here where I really feel my non-Frenchness and my Americanness because there are just certain cultural things that yeah. are different. I mean, I feel like I'm in some ways in the worst of both worlds. I go back home and I, and I, I look at my American... Uh, counterparts with the contemptuous eyes of a European and then I come back to to France and I feel you know I feel like an American in France but other times it cuts the other way and I, and I feel like I have the the best of both worlds um, but your husband speaking of whom I mean I, I I've I feel like I know a bit about him from your writing uh, during the Gilets Jaunes protests you wrote something quite moving about how he was riding his or not the Gilets Jaunes the the Union strikes when there was no transit there was there was no metro you wrote about him uh, riding his bicycle to work to the hospital to take care of his patients and then since confinement um you and he have have been separated right and he has been working in the hospital and you've been in the countryside uh so yeah during the two months lock national lockdown from mid-march to mid-may we did separate because as a doctor he was obviously at higher risk and he did see covid patients during that time he also volunteered at several Paris hospitals at the peak of the pandemic during that lockdown. French hospitals, most of them, or many of them at least, especially in Ile-de-France, the Paris region, were overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so they put out a call for volunteers, medical students, doctors, you know, technician, medical technicians, anybody. They needed all hands on deck. Um, and his one of the reasons we separated is not just to protect me, but also because his 93-year-old mother, who has one lung, one working lung, and is in the highest risk category one could imagine from her age and her, her health condition, uh, lives by herself in the same apartment in which she's lived for the last 65 years and is completely dependent on us. We do her grocery shopping uh -huh. once a week. We take her out. We do, you know, check on him. She has the advantage of having a son who's a doctor. <laughs> um, and so we thought, my God, what would happen to her? Um, if something happens, if we both get sick, who will take care of her? So we decided we'd do that so that if he came down with the virus, I could, you know, pick up the slack and take care of my mother-in-law. So what has this been like then? Uh, I mean, in a way, uh, you're writing about having a kind of beautiful experience um, in your garden. What's the name of the village? The village is called Videl. Videl, and it's south of Paris? It's south of Paris. It's uh, near Mi la Forêt. It's not far from the for uh, Fontainebleau Forest, if people mm -hmm. have heard of that, or Fontainebleau. Uh, it's about 25 minutes from there, but... It's in the it's in the uh, Parc Naturel du Gatinet. It's a beautiful little village. The population is 600, and that has been the population for several centuries. And there are still wow. farmers who work. We have farmers taking their tractors in and out of the village and working the fields around the village every day. It's it's quite 
quite lovely, actually. But it's 45 minutes from where I live on the northeastern edge of Paris. Mm-hmm. That's, of course, when the traffic is moving. <laughs> how did you end up there and how did you find the place? I guess I've, I'm a fan of all of your real estate choices. You, 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 on Twitter, I'm aware that you had a, or still have a place in Sardinia. So that's it's a, fl- a place that I uh, have bec- through my father, who um, the Indian immigrant in the United States became an aeronautical engineer, and he ended up uh, working for Boeing and then McDonnell Douglas, and he was sent there by Douglas uh, in the in the 90s uh, when the um, local airline made a big purchase of their air, of their aircraft and. The wily Indian merchant caste Indian that he is, he used his expat rental allowance to buy a little place. Smart man. That's how we ended up with this, uh, you know, modest house. But in paradise, hey, it's in Sardinia, (laughs) so you know, we know who's complaining. So yes, we have the Sardinia connection. Um, No, the country house, and we look back and think, what a wise choice we made. Uh, We sold an apartment that we had purchased in Brooklyn. And uh, that served as a very important springboard for my son when he was just out of college. Um, but after Trump was elected, I got very jittery. And even though the stock market has gone up, 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 and seems to have no connection with reality anymore at all, yeah. um, I thought this bubble has got to burst at some point. And so we sold it, and we used the proceeds to buy this little house in the country. Uh, because we live in Pantin, in those Paris suburbs, in you know a very concrete and paved-over environment, uh, I can see part of the périphérique, the beltway that goes around Paris from my apartment, uh, and we just wanted to have a quiet place in nature, and it turned out to be almost literally life-saving <laughs> than when the pandemic hit. Yeah, tell me about that because you posted a picture on Twitter of the work that you've done in the garden. It was it was gorgeous. And today you came bearing gifts from your <laughs> bountiful garden, flowers, herbs, and tomatoes. I mean, that must have been quite an extraordinary way to spend the lockdown. So it really was an extraordinary way to spend the lockdown. Um, as I wrote in the New York Review of Books in their pandemic journal, um, you know, I was so afraid for my husband's health. He himself is a, a heart patient. He's 65 years old. He's considered at high risk, and he was seeing COVID patients every day, you know, every week, at least in Paris. So I would just go work in the garden, because otherwise, I, unless I got myself so tired at night physically, I couldn't sleep because I was so anxious about him. And also the general angst about what was going on. I mean, nobody, I think, was sleeping well during yeah. at the peak of the pandemic. Certainly not my children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. Um, and then, you know, it became a kind of a project. And Rebecca Mead published a very lovely piece in The New Yorker recently about the therapeutic, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, effect of, of, of gardening and how to create a garden is both to have faith in the future because you're planting seeds, life that will grow in the future, especially if you plant a young tree or something, mm-hmm. you know, you're really betting on the future. At the same time, um, it's it's an acknowledgement of our mortality because the you know the, there are the perennials and the annuals that will die and mm-hmm. and you know there are always some plants that don't make it and and if you don't take care of it it quickly gets out of control. So now you know I'm kind of uh, have this living thing that I created 
um, and it's demanding from me. I have to take care of it, or <laughs> you know, it's and I I can't bear to just kind of let it go wild or die because it it it, it was really life saving for me during the the peak of the pandemic. Yeah, and but I mean, it literally bore fruit. So how do you? Sp- Split your time now. Are you um, mostly in Pantin again? It's it's very variable. Yeah, that Pantin remains the base, but you know sometimes I if it's like in a week of hot weather, I'll hike mm-hmm. down during the week to see how things are doing. Uh, otherwise, we're there most weekends. Gotcha. So uh, speaking of Pantin, I, I mean, I'd like to talk a bit about um, yeah how you ended up there, how you moved from um, from Paris proper to to the outskirts or the the banlieue. I, I guess I, I first became aware of you in 2013 because by chance I had written a kind of, uh, you know, complainy op-ed about uh, having arrived in the ninth arrondissement of Paris and hipsters were ruining my neighborhood after I'd been there for two years, gentrifying it. And the same Sunday, uh, New York Times published a piece by you on your neighborhood in Pontin <laughs> and how it was, you know, alive and vibrant and diverse and the future of Paris. And the juxtaposition of the two was interesting to me. And, um, you know, your, yours certainly didn't upset anybody <laughs> the way that mine did. Um, <laughs> but but, but th- that was really interesting to me because you were an early adopter to that neighborhood, which, has, which as you predicted, has um, certainly uh, begun to flourish or has already been flourishing. No, it's a cha- it's changed enormously, and you know I have I have also written about gentrification and how you know what I saw happen to certain neighbors like Williamsburg, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. absolutely <laughs> in the nineties, yeah. and it's kind of what's happening in Pontin now. Although it is a different country, the mayor is socialist. There's a commitment to thirty eight percent subsidized housing and things like that that don't really exist in the United States. But um, but uh, you know it's been astounding the speed of the changes uh, that have happened since I moved there. Um, I never thought uh, I would move there. I didn't. I wasn't even really aware that there were suburbs around Paris. I lived in a very intramuros within the walls, as we you know, mm-hmm. say here, uh, Paris bubble for decades. Uh, I felt like I'd already come a long way from the United States <laughs> to be in Paris, which already felt you know so um, kind of you know a, a, a des paysans. I don't even know how to say that in English anymore. Taking me to a, to another space. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really when I met Philippe, who my husband, who uh, lived in Pantin, uh, and I remember the first time I took the metro there. It's on the metro line. Uh, and I came up out of this metro at the Auch station, one stop over out, uh, you know, beyond the Périphérique. And my whole uh, geography uh, of Paris was like, my compass was spinning. <laughs> the, the Périphérique was on the wrong side. And the whole, you know, thing that we think of with the Seine and the, yeah. and the, you know, the snail of the, of the arrondissement coiling out around it was suddenly not helpful. Um, you know, there was obviously a very different population. Uh, I, I, I really just felt like I totally lost my bearings. And yet I was meters away from Paris. And now, of course, I feel like that was so ridiculous because I, now I've lived there for several years. It's my home. And I have new bearings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and of course, in the meantime, in 2016, the metropolis of Grand Paris was officially signed into existence. And so I now live in Paris. Officially, I live in Grand Paris, which exists. Oh, I didn't realize that, actually. It's, it's, wait, can you break down? So Paris has always been 20 arrondissements. And now, since 2016, it, it, it properly encompasses Pantin and Saint-Denis and other uh, banlieues? 
So Paris remains Paris, and Pantin remains Pantin, and Saint-Denis remains Pantin, but there is a supra-entity, kind of like the European Union right. in relation gotcha. to France, called the La Métropole de Grand Paris, the Metropolis of Grand Paris, which officially exists, was created in 2016. Um, that includes Paris and much of the, the continuous metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really expands Paris to something more like the size of New York City, mm-hmm. if you think of New York City as the five boroughs and not just Manhattan. Right. Uh, and because, you know, it's an urban continuum, actually, uh, beyond Paris. It's all built up. To, for kilometers around the city, um, and it was the, the the Grand Paris was the brainchild of Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, inspired by the uh, violent riots that swept through France in 2005 following the accidental electrocution deaths of two youths in the Clichy Paris family of Clichy yeah. Soubois, Zayed and Buna. Their names are so so well known here. Um, and so Sarkozy, who was selected in 2007 on this law and order platform, actually came up with this plan in 2009 to create Grand Paris, uh, a, a supra-urban entity that would, uh, as he says in his speech, I'm paraphrasing from memory, um, do away with the banlieues. The banlieues will cease to exist when they're part of you know, this one single city to create a, a rapid uh, uh, transit system that would that would make movement possible and easier to and from Paris, which it isn't from all those banlieues right. now, That's the and also between this, each other. Yeah. And so uh, subsequently was created the uh, Grand Paris Express, which is already being constructed. Part of it will be finished for the 2024 Olympics, though not as much of it as was hoped because there have been delays because of the pandemic. But it's slated to be completed by 2030, and it's the largest public transportation project in Europe. 200 new stations. Wow. Uh, sorry, 200 kilometers of tracks, 58 I, or 68, can't remember, new stations, all architect design they were bid on that mm-hmm. will include in each station works by contemporary artists to create the artistic patrimony of tomorrow. It's a hugely ambitious Well, you make it sound project. much more appealing than I've ever read about it. And, well, and I mean, concrete. that's the appealing yeah. part. Mm-hmm. The not-so-appealing part is, will it really achieve the integration, as it were, of the banlieues with the elite city center? You know, for 2,000 years, Paris has been, has cosseted its elite within walls of various sorts. (laughs) And the barbarians have been pushed outside. The, you know, most uh, most, uh, recent uh, or the most famous recent example of that was the Baron Haussmann's Mm -hmm. remake of the city and, you know, plowing these big boulevards and wide avenues through the poor, congested districts of Saint-Antoine so that there wouldn't be the kind of, of, of citizens' revolts that Victor Hugo made famous in Les Miserables, and also to preserve, interestingly enough, in our own time, Paris from pandemic disease because the... Right, the flow of air, right? The flow of air following the cholera epidemic of 1832 that killed 19,000 Parisians in six months. I mean, the, the, the numbers like that are truly <laughs> staggering and put yeah. COVID in place. Yeah, but that's what your point was uh, in, in a piece I read recently from you, that unlike, uh, unlike New York, where we talk about the city is, uh, will the city rebound? Paris has rebounded from so much that's gone so catastrophically wrong throughout the millennia, and there's, <laughs> there's no conversation about whether Paris will be able to bounce back or not. There's no conversation about whether Paris will survive because, first of all, I mean, it's the, it's the financial, cultural, 
and political capital right. of it's a DC, very centralized and New York country. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's every you don't move anywhere else if that's what you're looking for. Um, but it's changing, and it's going to change radically. And the American notion of this kind of eternal Paris, the Paris will always have. Um, you've probably seen, as I have recently on social media, uh, this new. Netflix series Emily in Paris, which seems to, you know, <laughs> re re uh, take uh, to re a retake on every single Paris cliche any yeah. American who's never been here would want to fantasize about. That Paris already never doesn't exist, and it's absolutely not going to exist very quickly in the future. Part of it is ecological. Anne Hidalgo was reelected in June on a platform to radically transform this city. Uh, into a post-carbon city, put in urban forests. These additional bike lanes that were put in for the corona lanes, Fantastic, for example, yeah. are going to be made permanent. Um, the périphérique is going to be completely redesigned as kind of parkland with easy access over it for pedestrians and cyclists, another way to kind of break down oh, that I barrier. I can't wait for that. I'll, yeah. I'll believe that when I see that. Now, will that really calm the tensions between the immigrant and children of immigrant population that's pretty much been warehoused in public housing ghettos on the periphery of the city and the elite of the city and that have been the source, as it were, of so much well, suffering, but also violence. Um, that remains to be seen. You know, there are, there are problems here uh, that are being worked out in some of the same, mostly different ways from in the United States around racism, around racist policing. Um, we had a Black Lives Matter demonstration here in Paris uh, in June, despite warnings not to gather in small numbers. Um, there's a whole reckoning around similar issues of, of, of a reckoning that's happening in the United States with different debates. Of course, it's happening in a different context. Um, it's not clear to me that some of that that needs to be solved politically and socially is going to be solved by architecture and urban planning. <laughs> right, right. But which society, I guess, and you know, this is maybe a question that can't be answered, but I'll try it. Which, which society makes you more optimistic or do you have more faith in uh, to, to transcend some of these uh, divisions that seem to be so difficult to, to repair? Well, I mean, I think I have more faith in France at this point, even though I don't have complete faith in France. But, I mean, the situation in the United States is just so unbearably um, horrific every day with, with, with Trump's patent uh, efforts to start some kind of a race war and, you know, really, uh, or civil war of some kind, violence, these militias and everything. We don't have that going on here. Thank God. And Macron has warts. He's not perfect, but he's not Donald Trump. So right. I have more faith here. But I have to say, Thomas, that I am fearful that a moment in history where, in which I was born and that I've lived most of my life um, in which, you know, a kind of cosmopolitanism and mongrelization of which I am a product uh, of different cultures, uh, you know, merging of internationalism, uh, is giving way in many places to tribalism, to these kind of you know rigid um, identity categories that uh, defended with violence uh, that that are really really frightening. I mean, look what's even going on in Germany, just over the French border. Yeah, or look what's going on in another society that you um, are very knowledgeable about in India. In India, 
Uh, you know, and I feel like, wow, I'm a mixed race intellectual. Shoot me first. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> in that kind of an environment, <laughs> we're the first to go. <laughs> well, y- you can hide out in Sardinia. I might be, I might be gone before you. No, but, but I, I mean, I think that's not going to happen in Paris anytime soon, or and I hope never. Uh, but certainly, the tenor of our times globally is is frightening. I, I yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I've been really alarmed by the, the, the like what you're identifying the, the global aspect of it. It's not we don't have a fire in one place. We have these little fires and big fires raging everywhere at once. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by your kind of career trajectory because um, in in many ways um, you've moved through. Uh, means of communication and of, uh, and of looking at the world that um, resonate with me. You're a memoirist, you're also a reporter, but you're a philosopher. I mean, in, in, in that lane, you've gone much farther than I have. You, you, you studied um, mimesis. Your dissertation is on, on mimesis, and you studied with uh, two Philippe of... Philippe Lacoulabart was y- my dissertation director. And some of your other professors were two of the greatest Jean philosophers of the 20th century. Professor, yeah. yeah. Um, is, how do you combine these different uh, modes, memoir, um, you know, cosmopolitan journalist, philosopher, or, or are, all they, are they actually um, all aspects of the same kind of exploration? Uh, I also had a big music phase. You also had a music <laughs> Okay, so that's where we part. I, I don't even have that talent at all. I made my living as a violinist in Paris and when I was here that first year and, and came back for a project later on a Watson Fellowship. And wow. So I have the music part, too. I don't know. I, I, you know, the philosophy thing, I went very far with it, but I wouldn't describe myself today as a philosopher because I kind of defrocked. I mean, I didn't stay in the... I didn't... I didn't become a philosopher after being like trained you, in philosophy. You do the dissertation on mimesis, and you can you can call yourself a philosopher. <laughs> I guess. I, I guess I haven't. I mean, I I feel so humble uh, in relation to my teachers that I I would I would feel uncomfortable taking on that mantle because they were really completely absorbed. It was their life's purpose to think about thinking. If we think about mimesis, I mean. I have been thinking recently about Rene Girard and mm-hmm. and his scapegoat theory. Mm-hmm. Um, you're pretty active on Twitter as well. Uh, do you see a lot of this um, playing out in, in 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 on social media and in in the ways that ideas are being reproduced and behavior, you know, is 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 replicating itself uh, in the culture now? Is it, are, are you seeing your philosophical analysis come to life? Uh. You know, I, I've, what I see directly on social media is limited because I is, I have a curated list on Twitter of people I follow, so I mostly get echoes of mm-hmm. what uh, other noise is going on out there. And of course, I read the press on what's going on. Um, I think I think Rene Girard's uh, uh, idea of the scapegoat has a lot of currency right now. I mean, you know, look at the demonization of Muslims by Trump. I mean, that's just one example. Mm-hmm. Or now what he's, all the dog whistles are even more obvious racism that he's peddling. Um, so this us and them, and, you know, we, we will exclude and sacrifice the yeah. other to constitute, you know, to, to reconstitute unify. and unify, you know, who we are and become whole again, us, once we've expunged, you mm-hmm. know, this alien thing. Um, and he's not alone. You mentioned Narendra Modi in India. Um, you can mm. see what's going on in in uh, the Philippines, in Turkey, in, in uh, Brazil, in Hungary. It's, it's really um, quite... Uh, dispiriting. And I think another um, 
book and person who really uh, speaks to me in this moment is um, the Society of the Spectacle. Yes, you know, absolutely. Guy Debord. Yeah. Guy Debord and, and how much uh, of, of what we're uh, experiencing in terms of, of power uh, uh, over us or power plays around us and the, or that we're, that, are, that we're caught up in is, is, uh, is really what he described in that work. Uh, and the spectacle just you know, has kind of morphed into this really um, toxic disinformation swamp of social media. And the power that the companies have, you know, Facebook, I, you know, what I, it's recently been uh, implicated in specifically vehicling, uh, that's French American <laughs> speak, in specifically uh, helping the government in power in India with its yeah. social media message and trolling, of which I've been a recipient of, it can be quite vicious. Um, because, of course, the Indian market is important to Facebook. What are they doing elsewhere? And this, they've been challenged a lot. And Zuckerberg's been called before Congress and everything. It's it's such an incredibly powerful medium. We know it's full of disinformation. We know the Russians and who knows who else are trying mm-hmm. to manipulate it, not to mention any political player. And people, um, it, it appears, and maybe it's true of myself as well. I just mentioned I had a curated list of people I follow. People appear to be in their own little bubbles of disinformation or self-reinforcing kind of ideas where where they are not exposed to other uh, messages or other news, and and um, they kind of just keep getting more and more extremely whatever their group is doing. Yeah, it's really something. I was looking at some numbers the other day that showed that, uh, you know, in the mainstream in CNN or NBC or the New York Times, you know, X subject was shared a total of on all three networks, a total of something like 20 million times. But Ben Shapiro alone on Facebook had 55 million shares on the same subject. And so an enormous amount of people um, who are supporting Trump are not seeing even anything counter to this very, very limited kind of take on the subject that they get through Shapiro or anybody else that they might follow. Um, and, they, and, and he himself has become, and I don't want to pick on Ben Shapiro at all, but he himself has become um, someone who wields an enormous influence and responsibility without all of the institutional kind of checks on, right. on, on the message he might spread. And, and, and even in those institutional spaces, I mean, I think... I, it's interesting to talk to you. You were um, a member of the editorial board at the Times. You know, the Times is where I write. But I think that um, it's difficult for them to uh, to cover to cover topics in a way that's perceived as not being um, biased or having a particular narrative that that they're buying into. I, I think this is a real problem that we're I, I, that we're navigating. That how do how do we instill trust in a variety of readers and not play to a kind of team that 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 more or less believes that our values align before the story gets written, before the facts get investigated. I think it's really difficult. You know, I'm thinking back to my childhood when every evening we would watch the CBS Evening News, and there were three choices: it was right. ABC, NBC, or CBS, and that was all the news anybody in the country watched on television. And so there was a kind of um, you know, shared reality 
about what was happening. You might have a different opinion about it. You might think it was good. You might think it was terrible. But you we might, agreed on but the facts. There was some the basics, agreement yeah. that a certain reality was there happening and we were all in it, even if yeah. we, whether we thought it was good or bad. And that's just gone, I think. Really, people live in these parallel universes. And I, uh, you know, when I, when I see... Uh, like I saw the people uh, along Trump's route in North Carolina on, in a photograph today. Um, and I just think to myself, you know, these aren't perhaps fundamentally bad people. Um, they're certainly, I would, ha- I w- I, from my perspective, ill-informed, misinformed, or not, you know, not informed. Um, but I, I really now believe that they just don't live in the same mental universe as I do because they don't, they don't have the same information I do. Right. No, it's, it's, I, I don't know what the answer is actually to it because I started to notice this in 2016 with family members who um, are on my mother's side or would be conservative, less educated than, um, than my father or, or, or myself, but considered themselves Christians, voted for Trump. And I realized when, when this was tearing apart our relationship over Facebook, 2015-16, uh, I realized that we didn't disagree on politics so much as we disagreed on the basic aspects of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we disagreed on what even Barack Obama had been doing in office. We disagreed on um, who Donald Trump was or what he was even arguing he wanted to do, what it would what would be the implications of what he did. They, we agreed on none of that. And um, it's only gotten worse from there. I mean, you mentioned Guy Debord. Uh, I've been thinking about him. I've been thinking of Jean Baudrillard. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, if anyone, do you look to now who's, who's, who's analyzing what's going on and has something to say that maybe we should turn to? Um, I mean, a name just popped into my head on, this, on the spot is uh, Judith Butler. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know. I have been spending a lot of my time thinking about other things than the the you know thing than philosophy the state of philosophy right now um but i think someone like that is probably mm-hmm. worth reading now i think it's also worth rereading people you're reading both yeah that's great you know mm-hmm. i mean that's certainly someone who's worth rereading um he i mean he had a book called screened out that came out <laughs> way before uh these things took yeah. over our entire lived prophetic reality. yeah prophetic um you know philippe Nicolas Barthes was mm-hmm. writing on mimesis um, representation um, is very important, I think, and he delved into a lot of political topics. And you know, I get a lot of flack—not a lot, but some flack—on social media when it when uh, it's revealed that I studied with some of these guys because um, post-structuralism and deconstruction is is has taken a very bad rap. Mm-hmm. in the decade since, and it's all their fault because they're the ones who made this rock-bottom reality that we all share disappear right. because, right. you know, <laughs> there are no, if there's no absolute truth, well, then anything goes. That's the line, right? Americans took that and ran with it. That's for right. sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was there. I studied with them, and, and I can't speak for all of them, and some of them, as we know now, you know, signed that horrible letter <laughs> supporting that snuff yes. you know, in yes. pedophilia, which is, like, horrible. That was a big I, open letter about, at the time. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't know, you know. Um, but but Lekulabout didn't sign it. But, I mean, they were, some of them, very, very deeply engaged politically, especially, I know, Philippe Lekulabout, 
uh, wrestled deeply with what he thought was critically important in the thinking of Heidegger and Heidegger's compromises <laughs> with the Nazis. Yeah. Um, you know, and he showed us, uh, you know, films on the Shoah, and we would, and we, I mean, we talked we, in, my, in our graduate seminars, we're all PhD, uh, ABD students, so we, we were at a pretty high level of study, and we, t- we really wrestled with these questions, and, uh, you know, when I, my work was on the representation of exotic others, so uh, in the project of European colonial expansion, and, um, you know, these, they, these guys were very open to thinking about, I know, how do we think about that? Um, and so the, it wasn't like their work was an ap- a, a, a project to depoliticize things or that they didn't think reality existed. They just thought the way many physicists do that the observer influences the observed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a fact in physics. Yeah. Um, and, you, look and, at, you start looking at some <laughs> atoms and they behave differently. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, if you think about it that way, there's really nothing that strange of, uh, that they should come to some conclusions like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, there's my little defense of my mm-hmm. old teachers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if I have to think about some, I mean, Foucault has probably had some of the most significant impact on yeah. all of our conversations. Surveiller et yeah. mm-hmm. the, the panopticon. The panopticon. I mean, the surveillance society. And we're doing it to ourselves. We're surveying ourselves and each other. Absolutely. Powerful work. Yeah, and the body, you know. The Everybody body. talks about the being embodied, the embodied mm-hmm. experience. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible when you think about these these French intellectuals, their impact, their importance when they came over to America, and those ideas were adopted, and and, and, and it took a few decades, but they were mainstreamed, you know. The just the language. I mean, I wonder what you think about that. The the the, the language that we encounter now in twenty twenty um, on social media has become much more academicized than it ever was ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. Um, what do you think that that's the result of? Or maybe you don't think that's the result of anything other than just the fact that we're all on Twitter. Um, but I, I, I feel like they've done studies on, you know, like a term like body shows up so many more times now in the in the New York Times or in other media outlets than it ever did in the past. Uh, and it, it's, it, there's a specific kind of way of speaking uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that in many cases, that, you know, there there are these flash trends in social mm-hmm. media, and they apply to language as well. So, you know, some term that seems to designate some, you know, visceral important thing it becomes really hot for a moment, but then it's quickly forgotten, and we move on to the next term. Um, I also think that uh, there's a lot of vulgarization, and I use that word probably in the French sense, but popularization. Mm-hmm of um, what were originally deeply thought philosophical contexts. I see people using right. the word deconstruct in all kinds of articles right. all over the place. They have no clue what that, where that comes from or what it really means. You know, they really, uh, I've seen it used really as nothing more than a, like a takedown, which is not what it is. Right. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of, of misappropriation. Maybe some journalists or people on social media think that makes them sound... Uh, more informed or I, I'm not sure um, but I think p- part of it is a lack of attention span mm-hmm. on social media 
On the other hand, you know, maybe there are just a lot of people who went to graduate school and didn't get jobs and they're all on social media. That might be part of it, actually. That might be part of it. But, you know, the, the, even the terms, like the terms, uh, social media uh, speaks American. And I've been quite intrigued by the ways that um, in this season of protest, um, people are protesting in Paris, they're protesting in London, they're protesting in Amsterdam with an American lingo. Um, the French say, I can't breathe. They don't say, je peux pas respirer. You know, there, there's, there's something to the kind of uniformization of language. That's... Je m'étouffe actually is what the, I can't remember his name, though, the guy who was stopped on his, who's making a delivery, was stopped by the police. They opened mm -hmm. the door and put him down and he died after being put in a chokehold. And he repeated, and again, I can't remember how many times, but multiple times, je m'étouffe, je m'étouffe, which is French for I'm right. suffocating, I can't breathe. But I guess the, the in the manif in the manif they they have on the mm. signs I can't I can't breathe, but you know there's something to the kind of the the mainstreaming of of these concepts. But I think that uh, that's a subject for another that's a subject for another podcast perhaps. Mira, thank you so much for for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. The American Library in Paris has served English-speaking readers in Paris and elsewhere since 1920. To read about its programs and events, please visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org. Please check out program notes for this and all our episodes on theamericanscholar.org backslash podcast. Au revoir. See you next time.